0: All right, you guys can take a seat, and you already have, well done. If, uh, if tonight, tonight's your first time here, man, just absolutely grateful to have you here. Um, here's the short of it, okay? If you're joining with us tonight, um, our deep desire is to rest in the love of God, as we continue to be vulnerable about our place and our standing as it pertains to God. And that's completely messed up and in desperate need of Him, not self-help, not some list of things that will make us better. Uh, We're a church community that says that that there literally is no other answer besides Jesus. And so if you're just joining us here tonight, uh, know that. We're going to dive into the Word of God tonight. We're not going to uh, preach motivational stuff that just stirs our emotion, and so it is amazing it 's a privilege to have you here tonight. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, how many of you guys have ever had a foreign exchange student? Anyone here by raise of hand foreign okay four six um, uh, How many of you guys have at least been a friend of someone else 's foreign exchange student Okay. How, how many of you guys at least know what it is all of you guys they 're from another country they come here they 're a student all right that 's the quick of it. the end of my junior and senior year in high school, we had this girl that was a foreign exchange student in our household, and her name was Addie. Uh, I, I feel the need at sometimes, and I'll probably, my volume will probably escalate. I don't know if you guys are like this, um, but for some reason, I feel the need when I'm talking about those people who don't speak English primarily, that I, I need to raise my volume to speak to them, you know? Because I feel like somehow then that will communicate You know, the, across the language barrier, right? But, but the most amazing thing, one of the most amazing things about having a foreign exchange student, which, by the way, I'm sure our family messed that girl up. You know what I'm saying? I mean, she, Mom, I hang, hung out with these crazies. You know, it was awesome. But the, but the thing that was the, the biggest blessing is being able to be there for their first experience of, like, all these things. You know what I'm saying? I mean, she gets off the plane. We're all there. we get holding up the signs. I don't know if we're holding up the signs. Just That would make a great movie scene. But um, she comes off the plane, and, you know, we're small chatting. And then you're instantly like, Addie in Addie in St. Louis, we have the arch, you know, and, and you, you're talking it up, and you just can't wait till she comes and sees the arch. Addie, the arch, it's metal, you know, and you're talking to her about pizza. Addie, the pizza in America is amazing, you know, and um, or, you know, and, and the list goes on and on. And, and then when you experience these things with her, right? like, what are you doing? You're, you're just longing for her reaction, you know? So, so you show up at the arch, you know, and she's like, yeah, where I'm from, we got the Panama Canal, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is a sneaking metal arch, you know, and you're, you're like longing for her to be as excited about it as you are, you know what I mean? Or when she tries pizza, you know, I, I can remember her like, what is this nasty Italian goulash, you know what I'm saying? And, and you're just like, what? Like, this is like, you know, manna from heaven, what are you talking about, you know? Uh, another quick story. Uh, the, first time, the first time that I was going to Colorado, how many of you guys have been to Colorado? Any of you guys? Yeah. You know where it is, right? Just south of California there. And um, when I was, I, was, I was headed to Colorado for the first time in my life, now this is classic. Uh, anyone that I would talk to and I would say, hey, I'm going to Colorado. And if they had been there, you guys know what they say. They're like, Dude. You, you, you will not believe what you will see when you go. I mean, there are mountains, Mark. You know, mountains. Big structures. God's, this You're going to love it. You're going to love it, you know. And then, then you talk, hey, I'm going to Colorado. Mark, have you been there before? No, never. Dude, you're, when you get there, it's going to be unbelievable, you know. And, and then you go and it is. And then you're the other guy. You know, you're the guy on the other side of the coin. Uh, every ski trip that I take, my favorite part of the ski trip, minus watching people fall down the mountain on the first day, um, just kidding, kind of, uh, is, um, is looking in the rearview mirror after I've driven all night in a 15-passenger van and I'm, I've taken a bunch of no-dos. Just kidding about that. Um, I actually take the five-hour energy, so completely different. And, um, and I'm, I'm sitting there at 10 a.m. in the morning and I'm looking in the rearview mirror at the faces of the people who have never been, you know? And I've talked it up so much, and watching their eyes when they see the mountains, it's just it's priceless, you know. Um, we've been studying for six months, first John. And here's the picture that I get from John. is an old grandpa who is desperately, passionately communicating the truth of the gospel, so that his readers and his listeners will not merely hear via his testimony and experience, but rather that they would see it for themselves. But rather they would taste it for themselves. But rather they would be then the individuals that would say, whoa, whoa, you'll never guess how beautiful it is. You know how I know that? By the way that he opens, First John. Let me remind you. That which, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. He's an old man that desperately wants his readers to get it. Look, if you've ever been in ministry before, one of the most frustrating pieces about ministry, and Jason and Jeff and and anyone else, Matt, anyone else who's here, anyone else who's been in ministry, you can attest to this. One of the most frustrating pieces is when you feel like, like you or your people aren't getting it. And you, and you sit there with your hands and your hair, and you're just like, you know, my spike, And you're just like, why? But here's what I believe, and here's what John believes, is that God is the only one that can stir in your hearts. And so I'm praying tonight that as we, as we dive into this passage, that God will in fact stir in your heart, that he will take us on a journey, and that all of us tonight can walk out and be the ones that are saying, "Do you've never been? Let me tell you something. It is so beautiful. It is so good, the grace of God. It illuminates. I'm praying that that's what happens here tonight. So open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We're going to be studying all of three verses tonight. Uh, so get ready for that. It should be a lot of fun. Um, yell out a page number. If, you're, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's one right in front of your face, okay? So just grab that and um, turn it first. Anyone got a page number in those pew Bibles? Okay, 3,667. was the number I heard? What was the number? No, seriously. 879, there we go. Verse 6 says this. Here we go, 1 John chapter 5. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. on, se dice? You know? What a peculiar three verses here, Right? You come to certain verses, and I think that means what in Spanish? Angela? No? What does it mean? Como? Just como, right? These three verses are extremely peculiar. Listen to this, listen to this. Between 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, and 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, we saw 32 mentions of the word love, 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 all over the place. It's clear that John is trying to communicate something about love. But then... Now he's going to turn to the affirmation, to the validity of what his claim has been. And what is his claim? His claim is the same in his gospel as it is in the epistle. And that claim is that Jesus is God and was incarnated. In other words, like I read earlier, was made manifest. In other words, came and lived in flesh and blood. Everything for John stems on the fact that Jesus came and lived in the flesh and the blood as God. Everything he says builds on that. Now, for us to understand verses 6, 7, and 8, we have to step back for a moment and all be on the same page with what was happening in the day. John is writing to a very particular cultural setting. That cultural setting is this. He traveled there to the churches in Asia Minor, preached the gospel with other apostles. Many, because of the grace of God, responded. Then what happened after they left is there, were, there was a group of people, and, and I would say that this group of people is amassing at this time, there was a group of people that began to communicate things that were against the things that John and the other apostles were teaching. What, the, what this group of people said is that Jesus was not God. And the reason that he was not God was that in the spiritual world is what is good, and in the flesh is what is evil. And so Jesus could not descend from heaven and become fully God and fully man in the flesh because the flesh is evil. This form of thinking is called Gnosticism. We've talked about it before. John is writing directly against this idea of thinking. What his premise is, is what you believe is anti-gospel and worth me taking an entire letter to write to the churches in Asia Minor to encourage them to flee. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, um, to better illustrate this, Andrew, please, John Madden. Okay, I have a new John Madden screen uh, we didn't buy it, just for those of you who are like, dude, how come we're spending you know, 4,000 jack on a screen up here? We didn't buy it. Matt McNeil uh, got it somehow. We won't ask questions, okay? So thanks, Matt, for that. Uh, I want to show you guys what verse 6 is talking about. Now, what the Gnostics believed is that Jesus, I apologize for my horrible handwriting, okay? That says Jesus. Work with me here. All right? Listen to this. What the the Gnostics believed was that Jesus was a man. That he came in the form of a man. And that when he came, he was even born of natural parents. The the spiritual realm that uh, implanted Mary with Jesus did not happen. Jesus was a man. Now here's what they believed. Listen to this. They believed that at the baptism of Jesus, the dove comes down. Work with me. The dove comes down and Scripture says in Matthew that it's in the form of what? That that it's to represent the Holy Spirit. The dove comes down and listen to this. The Gnostics believed that with this dove brought the Spirit of Christ. So Jesus is a man. The dove comes down when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And when the dove comes down, it, it makes Jesus into Jesus Christ. He wasn't God before, but now he transforms into God for what period of time? The period of time that the Gnostics say is this period of ministry time. And in this period of ministry time, that's why Jesus does miracles, that's why he preaches the way he does, that's why he appears, as the Gnostics would say, to be speaking on the authority of God. Now... The death. The Gnostics believed that right before the death of Jesus the Spirit of Christ leaves Him. What the Gnostics believed was that there is no way that God could suffer. What the Gnostics believed was that on the cross was a man bleeding. No God. No Christ no fully God, no fully man, nothing, that on the cross was a mere man gushing out pointless blood. That's what the Gnostics believed. Now, if you pause for a minute with me, you understand the other ramifications that this has. Because what did verse 6 say? Verse 6 says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Hold on a second. If the, person of, if the Spirit of Christ leaves, then is there a resurrection? No. What are you going to resurrect? There is no need for there to be a resurrection, and that's precisely what especially many sects of the Gnostics believe, that there was no need for a resurrection. So a mere man dies, a mere man's put in the tomb, and a mere man does not resurrect. But it also has implications on what? On the Spirit. Now we step back, and our minds are blown with the amount of time that John has spent teaching That when you become a child of God, a son of God, John says, the spirit is implanted in you, is a seed, he says, within you, seals you, another place in scripture says. And so now all of a sudden we're like, whoa, John was teaching to this group of people that believed on the cross was a mere man. And that the Spirit couldn't have come because if the Spirit comes in humans, then the Spirit is inhabiting evil, which is completely against Gnostic belief. Now for a moment, can you understand why an old man writes this? So what John's contention is, is this. So handy. Look at that. Amazing. What John's contention, uh, John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What John's contention is, is that Jesus is always God. Now, this isn't John's contention on his own. Okay? He's speaking on behalf of what he has learned from the God-man, the fully God-fully man, Jesus himself. Are you with me? So John's contention, though, in his epistle, is that Jesus was always God. And so for John, he says, Jesus comes by the water. So for John, what is baptism? Why did Jesus need to be baptized? That's an amazing question, isn't it? Did he need to repent? No. Was there any um, visual that showed that somehow his sins were atoned for? No. When Jesus is baptized, maybe you remember the conversation, he comes up to John the Baptist and John's like, I'm not baptizing you. You know what I mean? Like the lesser doesn't baptize the greater. It goes the other way around. But what does Jesus say? He says, you must baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. For the gospel, the baptism of Christ is one of the first moments where the God-man begins identifying with those who he came to save. He came to save people who were in desperate need of his sacrifice, in desperate need of repentance, turning away from their sin and turning towards God, And so his baptism is that first identifying mark of what it was that he came to save. So John's contention is that Jesus then lives perfectly. Now why is this important? It's important because if Jesus doesn't live perfectly, then he's not the unblemished lamb. He lives perfectly. He preaches. He performs miracles. And John's contention is that on the cross is the God-man. Bleeding, gushing, crown of thorns thrust through his forehead, on the cross is God. Not acting, not appearing hurt. On the cross is God taking, is Jesus taking the wrath of God, taking the sins of the world, bleeding real blood, not some fake ketchup that's poured down from God on the cross. The death is absolutely critical for John and absolutely critical for the gospel. Let me say this. Anything that finangles with the blood is completely heretical. Anything that takes the death of Jesus and says anything But God-man, suffering on the cross, becoming the propitiation for our sins, in other words, taking the wrath of God upon Himself, anything that teaches anything but that is heretical. Are you with me? That's the message of the Scriptures. That's what John is trying to convey. Listen, He didn't just come by water, He says. He came by what? By the blood. He wasn't just God at His baptism. He was God on the cross. And so John heads full tilt against the Gnostics, and says, you, my friends, are wrong. My God was on the cross. My God suffered. My God became the Passover lamb, which for 3,000 years was waiting on the sacrifice of Christ. A passionate man says, readers, can you just get this? But John doesn't stop there. What else does he say? He says, the Spirit testifies to all truth. So the Spirit comes down, inhabits people, and continually affirms in believers the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's where Jason ended last week, that Jesus is the Son of God. This is John's claim of why we can believe that. Now, I have one more diagram for you. No, not pretty pictures if we were to thrust all of the cultural gospel in America into one little handy diagram, here's the way it would look. Bear with me. Jesus comes, and Jesus is a complete human. Okay? But the good thing about Jesus is that He's at least a moral one. He's at least an ethical one. I mean, He's at least a guy, apart from some of these other crazies out there, that can show us, you know, a little bit of what it looks like to live. So Jesus comes, and guess what he does? This amazing prophet Jesus begins and continues to fill this religion that's called Christianity. And the culture would say, oh, and by the way, I'm not really a big fan of Christians, but that's what Jesus did. He started this movement called, this religion called Christianity. And the religion of Christianity goes something like this. Jesus lived very morally. In fact, he did it quite well. Talked about loving people, healed people, showed people how to live. And then Jesus died. As a martyr, not a savior. You see the difference? He dies as a martyr, not a savior. He dies a martyr's death. And to die a martyr death is to die for something that you so deeply believe in. And that's the death that Jesus died And so the culture would say, if you want to be a part of Christianity, which I know that doesn't look like Christianity. Repent of my horrible handwriting. If you want to be a part of Christianity, here's what you do. You live as best you can following Jesus. And then if you do such a good job of that, guess what? He might love you. And if, in fact, Jesus loves you, then the amazing thing that comes with Jesus is this concept of country club. If he loves you, you're headed to play golf with Tiger Woods for the rest of your heavenly eternal existence. If you were to sum up all the cultural gospel somewhere in there, that's what it would say. And here's what I would say: anything that finangles, if there is one thing as a Christian in this room that should give you more angst than anything, it's when some ideology, some teaching, Some form of thought distracts and finangles the blood of Christ. If you want to get frustrated with something, get frustrated with anything that takes the blood of Jesus and says it was worth nothing. And you're like, well, what does that mean for me, Mark? And I'll even take the question a step further. Am I that person? Am I a person that's finagling with the blood? Making a mockery of the cross? Is that me? When Christians say, thank you Jesus for the cross so I can keep on sinning. That is making a mockery of the blood. When people say, I love Jesus and thanks so much for that cross, because now I can go on sinning. Why? Because your grace is all sufficient. I've learned the Scriptures. Your grace covers me, washes me, white as snow, the Scripture says. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for the cross, so I can keep on sinning. And you're like, well, I've never communicated that. But I'm saying, have you lived that? Not perfection, John says, or earlier in First John, he says, if you claim to be without sin, you're a liar. It's not perfection. But the process of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, is that we're doing just that. Becoming more like His Son. And so we don't look at the Scriptures and say what Paul said, shall we go on sinning so grace may increase? He says, by no means. And so if you're a Christian in this room here tonight, and in your heart, even though you would never say it because it would be an embarrassment to the Christian community which you're a part of, but if in your heart You're currently saying, thank you, Jesus, for the cross so I can keep on sinning. The word and the message John has for you is, my friends, that blood is all we got. And so please, with the empowerment of the Spirit, which continues to testify to all truth, do nothing to make a mockery of that sacrifice. It's that picture that he says, readers, would you just experience the all-powerful grace of God and taste it and know? It's these three forms, and specifically towards Gnosticism, that he directs this entire passage. Andrew, you can take my scribbles away. Thank you. Verse 7 says this, For there are three that testify... So if um, verse 6 wasn't quite as confusing, now all of a sudden he says, for the, for there are three that testify. Um, w- w- what does this mean? Uh, there's a practical point to this. Do you guys remember when Michael Jackson passed away? Okay, he he did. If you haven't... Uh, I remember uh, Heidi texted me. If you guys text, use your phone and you type it out. Um, Heidi, Heidi texted me, and she said, hey, uh, Michael Jackson died. Now, this was this was especially important to me, because I used to wear the glove, okay, seriously, all right, (laughs) seven, eight years old, a few weeks ago, I was wearing the glove, okay, so me and MJ, um, but anyway, Heidi texts me, I'm like, yeah, right, you know, like, what are you playing with me for, and it's not like I listen to Michael Jackson all the time, but I'm like, okay, there's no way, like, I hadn't heard from anyone else, pretty soon, listen to this, pretty soon, I get like, six texts from people who know I like Michael Jackson, right, and they're like, dude, you hear about Michael Jackson, he's dead, you hear about Michael Jackson, So all of a sudden, when I was doubting my wife, which I should never do, and I'm so sorry, Babe. But all of a sudden, the legitimacy of numerical value increases testimony. You see what I'm saying? Like all of a sudden, like, hmm, that must be true. Now, this whole concept of three agreeing goes back to Deuteronomy 19. Now, in Deuteronomy 19, it's talking about the Jewish judiciary system. and And then the Jewish judiciary system, try to say that four times, the whole concept was one person couldn't bring a charge against someone else. There had to be two or three witnesses. And so John is saying there isn't just one witness to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. There are three. And what does he say those three are in verse 8? The Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. Well, what do they agree on? First, the Spirit. The whole premise of the Holy Spirit in you, verse 6, says it is continually testifying to the truth. The power of the Spirit in believers is that it continually, as we read the Word and discern like we talked about a few months ago, testing the spirits. as we're doing these things, the Spirit continually points back to Jesus the spirit god's sovereign plan so that believers may always remember and be connected to god through the empowerment that's in you resides in you so the spirit says that jesus is the son of god next the water you guys remember what happens at the baptism of jesus what happens jesus is baptized a dove comes down and who speaks father god speaks And he says, this is my son in whom I am what? I am well pleased. And so at the baptism, the testimony of God is, this is my son. All of creation has been waiting on the Messiah to come. And here he is. And I am well pleased. And so the water says, Jesus is the son of God. But how does the blood How does the blood say that Jesus is the son of God? Do you guys remember a centurion standing at the foot of the cross? Do you guys remember a curtain tearing in two in the temple? Do you remember words that Jesus spoke when he said it is finished? Do you remember an empty grave which the blood and the suffering had to happen so he could be put in the grave and then conquer the grave and conquer death? Do you remember that? The blood is God's way of saying, this is my son, not some mere man who's acting like a prophet. This is my son. Now, we communicate a lot of things in our culture and this is one of the ways that gossip works, unfortunately. is one person says it, and then another person says it, and then another person says it, and we begin to believe it because of numbers. Can I ask you this? What if God says it in three ways? What if Yahweh does? What, is, what does that mean? Can I tell you what it means? Can, can I tell you please what this means? Because you step back from a scripture like this and you're like, Okay, so the Gnostic, and we shouldn't mess with the blood. And what does this mean for me? Here's what this passage means for you and for me, my friends. The testimony of Father God embolds his people to see the agreement between water, blood, and spirits that they may be the testifiers that they may bear testimony, that they may be the sharers on the authority of who? Do you remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28? He says, all authority has been given to me and now I send you to go and make disciples of all nations. We are called because of the agreement that we see in the Scriptures to give testimony To who Jesus is. To what the blood means. To how the resurrection is significant. And because of this, we are going out on the authority of who? Father God gives you, by His power, the authority to speak the Scriptures and testify to the power of this great God. It's that thing that you all of a sudden sit back and say that one time when I got scared because I was talking to my coworker and I didn't know how to respond and he was asking me questions that you know I knew could ultimately point back to the gospel but I was afraid you have an opportunity in that moment emboldened by the spirit to experience the agreement and authority of Father God Look when John writes this he doesn't want his people just to read words he doesn't want them just to come together and grow in their theology and never be affected, because that's the danger. So we just come together and we tickle each other's minds with strong theology and good teaching and good worship, and then we just then we leave and we're like, right on. I learned a whole bunch today. This was great. Thanks for that experience. That's not what John wants. By the power of his, by the power of the Spirit, he wants his readers to say, "How can I not testify?" If God was doing it, and if we're to become more like His Son, then how are we not to proclaim? How are we not to testify? Do you remember what He said in the beginning? I've seen, and now I proclaim to you. You, Christian, have an opportunity because of the grace of God poured out on a cross that wasn't a man, but that was a God-man, dying really bleeding, you have the opportunity to bear witness to the Son of God. Given the authority by Father God. What more confidence do you need? What greater call do you want? As a church, may we Look at the blood of Jesus and say, It's that blood, the real blood, that this world needs to hear about. And we understand our challenge against a false anti-gospel in this culture. Can for a moment the weight of that sit on your shoulders, please? Who's going to tell them? Who's going to show the world that it wasn't just a man? maybe Christians who are finally believing and living that it wasn't just some human on a cross, but that it truly was the Messiah. On our lips, on our hearts, emboldened by the Spirit with the authority of God, may we forever proclaim His grace. And friends, the reality is many of you tonight who have been living under the premise that because of the cross, you can go on sinning. Maybe tonight, many of you need to be reminded of what Jesus did with his disciples when he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Please take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. Remember the real body broken. Remember the real sacrifice given, and then he takes the cup, and he says, this is the blood in my new covenant, which is representative of the great atoning work that I as the Passover lamb will make. He says, take and drink, and do this in remembrance of me. The reality is tonight, many of you Christians in this room, Maybe as you sit there, you've come to the realization that you have been making a mockery of the cross. Before you come and take what we do here at and Intention, pulling off a piece of the bread and dipping it in the cup, I would ask that you examine your heart, that you would pray the prayer that David prayed, search me and know me, and that you would repent of making a mockery of that blood. And then if you're a person here tonight, you walked in this room having no idea who Jesus was, my prayer is that by the power of God, that the scales will come off your eyes and that you'll see what so many of us here have seen. That he's the only way. The only power, the only way to have true purpose and ultimately just to glorify him. That Christ is the only answer for your porn problem, your marriage issue, your tongue issue, gossiping all over, your judging heart. Friends, Jesus and his blood, not self-help, not good examples of moral faith. Jesus is our only answer. So if that's you tonight, I would just invite you after the service to come find me or one of the elders or Jeremy and just let's talk. I'd love to tell you more about this Jesus that I've experienced for myself. Let's respond now with communion, with a heart of repentance and a desire to proclaim. Come when you're ready.